Hi, I'm Kirk Kernut. And I'm Scott Yarbrough. And welcome to episode five of the Great American Novel Podcast. In this episode, Scott and I are going to discuss William Faulkner's 1936 novel, Absalom, Absalom, which in my mind is probably only second to maybe Moby Dick as the novel that people think of when they think of a great American novel. And it's only second because far fewer people have ever managed to read Absalom, Absalom in its entirety (laughs) than have Moby Dick. In other words, Absalom, Absalom has the distinction of being the one great American novel that maybe makes Moby Dick look accessible. You may disagree with that, Scott. No. In fact, when you said it's one of the two novels, I thought you were going to say, along with Moby Dick, the most complex and complicated book on our inaugural list that you and I ping-ponged back and forth before starting it. It's it's Faulkner's tale of a a kind of sequel slash prequel to Sound and the Fury about a group of people in... 1910, looking back on a man named Thomas Sutpen from between the 1840s through the end of the uh, during Reconstruction era, and their attempt to recreate the history of his insane quest to be successful in the South at that time, how he decided to define that success, all the failures, and it's got all the Faulkner things we like, such as obsession over race and possible uh, moments of incest, or at least hints in that direction. But it is a complex, complicated, Baroque novel that really put the Faulknerian in Faulknerian. I think this is, by any measure, when we think of a Faulkner novel, this is what everybody's mind races to right away. And the other thing that I think it's fun to kind of note is to point out that in one of the rare cinematic parodies, of William Faulkner. There are a dime a dozen of Hemingway, but really there's only one movie that satirizes William Faulkner that I'm aware of, and it's the Coen brothers, Barton Fink. This novel is referred to as Nebuchadnezzar, which I remember seeing that for the first time and just busting out laughing. Yes, absolutely. Such a perfect Old Testament reference. (laughs) Well, you gave a great overview of the novel, And I do think it's wonderful to think of it as the kind of prequel to Sound and the Fury. I just wanted to start real quick with a quote about the question that always comes up with Absalom, Absalom is, why does it have to be this difficult? So I wanted to start with a quote about art from the director, Monty Hellman, who made one of my favorite movies, Tulane Blacktop, just recently celebrated its 50th anniversary. But I read this quote from him, and to me, the first thing that came to mind was Absalom, Absalom. Mm. So Monty Hellman says, a work of Mm. art should also be an object difficult to pick up. It must protect itself from vulgar pawing, which tarnishes and disfigures it. It should be made of such a shape that people don't know which way to hold it, which embarrasses and irritates the critics, incites them to be rude, and keeps it fresh. The less it's understood, the slower it opens its petals, and the later it will fade. So that that seems pretty applicable to Absalom, Absalom to me. I'm not sure it answers the question of why does art have to be difficult, but 
The only thing I say to students when they ask me that mm. is, you know, there are a number of great American novels like like the one we did last time, Edith Wharton's uh, The Age of Innocence, that are accessible. I think difficulty is necessary in some cases in order to challenge us to dive deeper and to try to understand the nature of reading, the nature of interpretation, the nature of narrative, and I'll use a word that is probably the most important word in the novel, design. Let's start with William Faulkner himself and the whole issue of Southern background. It's almost impossible to talk about William Faulkner without going back to his great-grandfather, William Cuthbert, great name, Faulkner, without the U, who almost all of Faulkner's great novels are about the plantation generation arriving in Mississippi and creating these huge testaments to their own grandiosity. And that's an idea that came to Faulkner through the legend of his great-grandfather that was handed down to him. Now, his great-grandfather died about 10 years before Faulkner was born, (laughs) but uh, certainly he was a huge imposing figure, famously built a... uh, Tall statue is a monument to himself in Ripley, Mississippi, which now overlooks a Dollar General, Mm. which is a commentary on America, I think. (laughs) But this notion of a Titan figure, it's a story that once again, as we talk about wealth and class in America, makes us want to believe in the underbelly of the American dream. In other words, that ambition leads to moral corruption. And in W.C. Faulkner's case, that corruption led to, you know, some pretty underhanded dealings in building a railroad empire, (laughs) but ultimately led to his murder, which Faulkner would dramatize in several of his fictions about Southern dynasties, including this one. Right. And it's particularly The Unvanquished, just a novel or really a collection of stories that form a kind of novel uh, that deals with the Sartorist family, which is the one that most parallels his own. And that great grandfather was also a novelist who wrote books that were kind of on the barely respected into the spectrum, but began mythologizing the lost cause and, you know, what the South had been before the war immediately on the heels of the end of the war. So they didn't even give the the corpus of the Confederacy time to get cool before they were glorifying it and creating hagiographies and romanticizing it. Um, His father was not a particularly educated man, was not particularly successful, and the family uh, fortune had fallen quite a bit by the time Faulkner's a young man, and he and his father, Murray, Never really got along. He is probably a little closer to his mother, who was a reader, who did expose him to certain uh, books and ideas as a young man. But of course, Faulkner's a famously bad student. He once he realized he wasn't big enough to play high school football seriously, he, he quit going unless the class interested him. Never graduated from high school, so he joins that amazing rank of autodidact American writers. And it is astounding, Kurt, when you think. Hemingway, Faulkner, Mark Twain, how many of these people did not ever go to college? But then, of course, World War I comes out, and that's when Faulkner thinks he can rise to heroism there. He had a very interesting and unique experience in World War I as he wanted to be a, a pilot, a fighter pilot, was rejected by the proto 
Air Force of the day. And so uh, managed to talk his way into the Canadian Royal Air Force and was in pilot training up in Toronto uh, when the armistice came. Claimed in letters to his family to have survived uh, a crash when there's little evidence that he ever really got beyond the classroom. But maybe more intriguingly, all the way deep into the 1930s, there's a New Yorker profile of him from 1933. You can go and dig up where it talks about him surviving a wreck in the, in the Argonne and hanging upside down in combat. And every time I read that, I think this was long before the New Yorker had its fabled fact-checking department. <laughs> and those types of lies would come back to haunt later, haunt Faulkner later in the latter decades of his career. But absolutely, one way to think of Faulkner is he's he really was torn between two impulses. One was to model himself on the sort of swashbuckling image of that great-grandfather and he swore from an early age that he was going to be a novelist like W.C. Faulkner. But on the same time, just a self-mythologizer. And so most of his early years are a kind of fun adventure in this creation of personae that he would flaunt around Oxford, Mississippi. You know, he was a bit of a dandy, always loved fine clothes, later sort of flaunted himself as a decadent uh, figure like uh, Aubrey Beardsley, and then came to be known by students at Oxford as Count No Account. And so you get the sense that he was uh, always a sort of an odd duck, right. smaller in statue, which made him stand out. But almost from the first moment in which he was a reader and a storyteller, he believed in what we would call the mythopoetic, not just inventing, but creating whole universes of kind of genealogies and lineages. And that's why we end up with this Faulknerian universe that we come to know as Yaknapatafa County. You know, it is interesting. There's so much, Americans are very strange because on the one hand, people worship celebrities. Any trip to the supermarket and when you see the magazines or if you look at all the Instagram and all the other things people tend to follow online, it's all about celebrity worship. Yet the only thing we we love more than we love celebrities is tearing them down. So when we think of Hemingway and how he would occasionally exaggerate the stories, there's usually quite a bit of truth to the Ur story in Hemingway. And people would just love to tear it down. And then a lot of times they're very shocked when they realize how much reality is behind the story. So he really did take over 200 pieces of shrapnel to his legs. And he really uh, did receive commendations from the Italian military, although he probably didn't carry one on yeah. his back for 100 yards or whatever. Whereas with Faulkner, who just made stuff up out of whole cloth, people have always been much more forgiving. And maybe it's because it's so ludicrous that he buys an officer's uniform and a cane and a swagger stick and he's limping around Oxford and they say, were you wounded in the war? And he goes, yeah, well, yeah, I don't want to talk about it. And then later he tells Sherwood Anderson, he has to drink so much because there's a silver plate in his head. And that story stays alive in Hollywood in the thirties and forties where people <laughs> he met out there, Howard Hawks and all those guys all thought he had been a wounded vet. And that that was where the, sure. his alcoholism came from PTSD rather than from just growing up in a generation of alcoholic. Imagine for a moment, a great, uh, a novelist today being it being discovered that he posed as a war hero. Right. I mean, that would be the end of the career. Absolutely. But with, 
but with Faulkner, it was just sort of people in his hometown just thought, oh, that's Bill. He just makes stuff up. Right. And so, and of course, a lot of them maybe bought into the story at some point, unless they knew his brothers who actively disparaged it. He, he knows he wants to be a writer. He knows no writers come from Mississippi, really, or successfully. He's being coached by a, a local friend who's an attorney a few years older than him who goes to Yale and is very serious about literature and really is kind of a mentor figure to him named Phil Stone. So he moves to New York to become a, a poet, and he works for a while at a bookstore with a woman named Elizabeth Prawl. And this is significant because within he doesn't last long in New York, but after he moves home, she moves to New Orleans with her new husband, Sherwood Anderson, the very successful American writer who was experimenting on naturalistic fiction and writing stories about people's you know secret problems and secret dark desires in their hearts and lives of no consequence. So Winesburg, Ohio being his collection of stories that ties all that together. And Faulkner then moves to New Orleans where he can be a real artist. And there he reinvents himself as the Bohemian instead of the dandy. And he's walking around without shoes all the time. And if New Orleans then is anything like New Orleans now, you really want to have your shoes on, if at all possible. But of course, he uses this connection with Prawl to meet Sherwood Anderson, who famously tended to be half generous and half very condescending to the young writers who would tend to work. And he eventually, as he's, as Faulkner's writing these novels says, well, yeah, I'll help him as long as I don't have to read anything he writes. Faulkner had a longer apprenticeship than either Hemingway or Fitzgerald or many, many writers of their generation coming out of the wars. Uh, John Dos Passos, uh, another example his first two novels are very unfalknerian and it's interesting that the publisher that anderson set him up with horace livewright loved the first two novels but when it came time for faulkner to write about his little postage stamp of soil rejected the novel and that's what compelled faulkner to sort of say i'm going to shut the door on the publishing world and create the art I want. And out of that experience came The Sound and the Fury, which is the first novel that we think of as being the William Faulkner template. In terms of publishing, he was exceedingly lucky that he met a young publisher that wanted to strike out on his own. And really for the peak of his years, all the way up to Absalom, Absalom, he was published by a very small New York outfit named, uh, well, originally uh, the guy's name was Harrison Smith, but it was originally Cape and Smith. And then Jonathan Cape, the British publisher, busted off from him and Smith had to go get a new partner. And then Random House ended up buying out Cape and Smith. Random House was just starting in the mid, uh, in that period of time. So Faulkner was very lucky with publishers that no publisher ever really came to him and said, we're not, we're not going to publish this unintelligible story. And there's some cases, I think, right. some of those novels that maybe could have used a little editorial, could have used a Maxwell Perkins to help him uh, shape it. But the Faulkner of the main Faulkner period that we think of is 1929 to 1936 was not the imposing academic figure that we think of today. That was an invention of the late 1940s after World War II, when the study of literature became associated with American universities. Um, Before that, in the 40s, he was really almost a forgotten man. 
um, spent spent the middle 40s in the salt mines of Hollywood, as he referred to them, eking out an existence, doing good work eventually. I mean, he did co-write really good screenplays for uh, To Have and Have Not and uh, The Big Sleep, right. but became an iconic figure, I should say. In the late 1940s, and in that last period up till his death in 1962, he's really not producing his best work, but he's continuing to write. And eventually, he has never really not been an, an institution since about 1946. So even as he's writing these genius works throughout the 1930s, the whole kind of 12, 13 years of amazing output. And I think there are almost no other writers you can put up against his production there in his period. I mean, he's in that level of people like Shakespeare when we really think about it, an incredible artistic output. He, at the same time, is a cult figure. He's a writer's writer. He's, he's not selling a whole lot of books. Only Sanctuary is remains a kind of big seller. A lot of, he's, he's, read by critics, he's read by other writers, he's well-reviewed, but he's mostly not selling much. He's not making the kind of money that Fitzgerald's making with his short fiction. He's not making the kind of money Hemingway makes with his novels. And where really everything kind of changes is when he wins the Nobel Prize in 1949. So throughout the 50s is when he becomes this, you know, this Southern gentleman farmer who is also writing these astounding works of literature. And he goes to the University of Virginia for a while as a, as a visiting writer and stays there and gives lectures for a couple of years. Although famously, you can't really trust Faulkner from interviews because he's very often, well, he's often drunk. And when he's not drunk, he's messing with the audience. And he also has a tendency to change his mind about things he had written and contradict himself in interviews. And so this is one of those cases where the authorial uh, or the intentional fallacy of not worrying about what author intended other than what's on the page is probably a safer route to follow. And of course, his drinking, just as we see with Hemingway at more or less the same time period, gets worse and worse. With Faulkner, it was not so much the daily drinking as he'd go on these incredible benders and they'd take him to a house or a sanitarium to dry him out. And they finally catch up with him after he falls off a horse and is ill and he doesn't really recover. His body's in such bad shape and uh, he's he dies at a young age in his early 60s. Not too far from where we are necessarily. Let's shift the gears back a little bit to the 1930s and talk about Absalom. And the composition process of this book has always struck me a little bit because when we think of Faulkner writing these incredibly difficult novels like he goes from sound in the fury to well, he writes sanctuary first but it's published right well he rewrites sanctuary after he writes sound in the fury to right right make it more modernist and more complicated he doesn't make it any less sensationalistic or about crime it's still yeah but he definitely ups the ante with the poetic language and the right if we think of what a modernism's tropes is not telling you everything you're seeing on the page and having to infer a lot based on kind of a obtuse rendering and use of symbol, then he's, he's definitely up into modernism and sanctuary that way. And then as lay dying after that. And then after that light in August. So there are light in August, there are three classics and one pot boiler that is now recognized as a classic. Right. So at least three of the greatest American novels within a uh, three-year period, uh, right on top of each other. We get to 1934, 
when he begins this novel in early 1934. And it, it at the time, takes him longer than any other of his novels. Right. Part of that is the financial pressure of, of making money. The novel, the novel has to be interrupted uh, in order to crank out short stories. But he also takes time when he writes himself into a corner to uh, crank out a one of the weirder novels in the Faulkner canon called Pylon, sure. which is about um, stunt pilots, barnstormers. Yeah. And uh, he comes back and even when he takes the novel back up in uh, 1935, it's still another year and a half of writing. So basically from the time of conception, in early 1934 to publication in, in uh, October of 1936, we have almost a three-year period. And if we think about the origins of Absalom, Absalom, it stretches back even further because part of the plot was really worked out in a story he did not publish in his lifetime that goes back to 1931 called Evangeline. Mm. And the whole thread of the possible incest between uh, Charles Bond and Judith Sutpin and uh, her, her other brother's role, Henry, in defending the family honor is worked out in that story. Right. So it's it's a novel that was as exhausting to write as it was as it is to read. And I thought I'd just ask you Scott, how many tri- how many tries did it take to actually read Absalom Absalom? That's a really good question most of the time, but what I'll tell you is I have a very weird answer for this Kurt. Um because I had just recently become completely obsessed with Faulkner. And so over the course of six months, I read all the big novels and I actually did get through this book the first time through, but I can honestly say I was one of those people saying after I'd read As I Lay Dying and Sound and the Fury, which I did not get at all the first time either. Why did he make it so complex? Why did he choose to make it so complicated? Why is it so, I kept using the word uh, King James language, which I know is very much not appropriate, but there is, of course, a lot of influence of King James Old Testament and Faulkner's writing. Sure. My experience, I was in an old house without air conditioning, and I read it in the middle of Tallahassee in the summertime. Mm. And my experience was kind of a photo negative of what Quentin Shreve sitting up in the frozen Iron New England dark, freezing to death in their dorm room. I was sitting in a second story room, melting to death, not being able to sleep all night because of the heat in Tallahassee in July without air conditioning that year and instead sweating all over the pages as I had to reread it over and over and over again. And so I actually did kind of get through the first time, but to give readers who haven't really read the book, uh, and then I want to ask you the same question, but to give readers uh, who haven't read the book a feeling of what it's like, this is the opening of chapter two. It was the summer of wisteria the twilight was full of it and of the smell of his father's cigars. They sat on the front galley after supper until it would be time for Quentin to start while in the deep shaggy lawn below the veranda, the fireflies blew and drifted in soft random, the odor, the scent, which five months later, Mr. Compson's letter would carry up from Mississippi and over the long iron new England snow and into Quentin's sitting room at Harvard. It's a day of listening to the listening, the hearing in 1909 
even yet mostly that which he already knew he had been born in and still breathed the same air in, which the church bells had rung on that Sunday morning in 1833, and on Sundays heard even one of the original three bells in the same steeple, where descendants of the same pigeon strutted and crooned or wheeled in short courses resembling soft, fluid paint smears on the soft summer sky. And that's halfway through the opening sentence or second sentence. And there's a bit more of that sentence and paragraph <laughs> to go. So that's for those who have not tried this book yet. That's what you're in for. And there is beautiful and amazing, but it is the words are written very close to the page as a professor of mine used to say, how about you, Kurt? What was it like first time you cracked at it? I'll be very honest. My experience was the exact opposite of yours. It took me 30 plus years to read this book in what we would call one sitting, not one temporal sitting, but one extended effort to get through it. Now, I'd read different chapters of it over the years, so I had been through the novel, but never once kind of in the experience of, of reading it. One of the things that's often said about Faulkner is you don't read Faulkner, you reread Faulkner. And I think it's very common for people to have the experience wow. of starting off, giving up, coming back, trying to get through. And that was kind of mine. I taught a Faulkner course a few years ago because I had never right. taught one and uh, needed, I just felt that was a, a gap in my own career. So I really devoted myself to, to getting through everything. And it, it was hard work. It was very difficult. There are two elements that I think make the novel difficult. Scott has talked about one. This is really where we get the Faulknerian art of the endless sentence. And it becomes very difficult to, it's almost in a hypnotic effect when you try to read uh, many parts of this novel, because it kind of, the style slips into a kind of incantatory sequence of uh, clauses and right. sentences, nothing is broken up and you find yourself kind of floating away and not really sure what you've read, but it's also a structural difficulty. This is by no means a linear plot. Now that's not unusual in modernism, but the way that I have come to think of this novel or explain it to folks that are outside of uh you know, the business of literary interpretation is you think of this novel as a game of uh, secret, if that's what it was called. We used to play this game where you'd sit in a row and I would whisper in your ear a sentence. You would whisper it to the next person. And by the time you got to the end of it, the, huh. the outcome was completely distorted. There were all kinds of different facts added. Yeah, sometimes it's called telephone. Right, that's I what I was, game. telephone. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't think of the name of it. But I think that's a good metaphor because this is really a novel about storytelling. Yes. And it's about the relationship between history and narrative and the way that narratives get retold. But in each retelling, more and more, quote unquote, facts or speculation gets to be added, which brings us, I guess, to the big question we would ask is, what would you say the theme of this novel is, Scott? That's really good point. And I can't believe I didn't really think you were going to ask me that. I should have had it, should have had it primed. Well, I, I think <laughs> I know what it is. And I think I'm going to take a famous Faulknerian saying that's repeated by everyone, is repeated by the Obama campaign in 2008, which is the past is never dead. It's not even past. And I would go even further and to say, 
one of the reasons it's never dead is we continue recreating it in our own image and to fit our own interests, whether we're glorifying it or demonizing it. Right. We have a tendency to sit on our um, soapboxes of our, our current era and to look back. And sometimes we make everyday people and the heroes who are not. And other times we, uh, we judged them from the righteous vantage point of the modern era without really knowing how we would have been had we lived in that same time and place. And I think you have to be wary of going too far down either one of those slippery slopes. And that Faulkner, more than anyone, is someone who was simultaneously, as you were saying earlier, kind of revering some of that history, but constantly calling into question throughout his career as people around him never challenged the ghost of the old South, uh, I think is very aware that you can easily go the wrong way and is always putting you on that knife edge in terms of understanding things. So that's what I'd say the theme is. That's a great way of explaining it. So basically what the design of the novel, and again, that's a key word of it, is to undermine through the use of, if we want to call it gossip, rumors, speculation, elements of stories heard from other people undermines this notion of a dynasty that so much of our our thoughts about the aristocratic south are built upon so the, basically the the way this novel is put together you have three big chunks of storytelling and in the first case it is quentin compson being told a story by this old spinster rosa coldfield before he goes to harvard where he will in the sound and the fury later commit suicide. And then you have a section where he's told essentially the same story with added speculation by his father who relies upon things that have been told to him by his father, who was a contemporary of Thomas Sutpen. And then the third section, which gets to be the most speculative introduces us to another controversial character who really has no relationship to the South. And who is that Scott? That is Shreve, his Harvard roommate, who is also, of course, an important character in the Quentin section of The Sound and the Fury. And Shreve is fascinated to South. He says, it's, it's like Ben-Hur, isn't it? Uh, it? Which at that point, of course, was a, a famous novel and a great silent film uh, with famous stuntmen in it. We had yet to see the Charlton Heston version that so many of us grew up watching and and enjoying some you know relatively well-filmed chariot races with good practical effects from uh, the late 50s early 60s Cecil B. DeMille I believe yeah one of his last great films uh, maybe the best of all of all his films but uh, so he's you know Shreve sees it as kind of endlessly entertaining and mysterious he's Canadian and he doesn't quite understand what all the fuss is about with the South and what kind of place Mississippi is. And he's constantly prodding and teasing Quentin in this book to get to the facts, to help him understand the story. And so the whole last, the the structure of the novel, you're right, Kirk. I think the way you talk about it is that game of telephone is very true. And it's also, I I talk about as a spiral. So you, you start with these outer truths and you worm your way in further and further but the internal truth, I guess you could say it's a very postmodern novel written before we'd really invented that term or yeah. those ideas, uh, because it kind of says the real truth is never 
ever going to be something you can know. So you're going to have to kind of decide what it is for you and see how that affects you. You know, those first four chapters, Rosa Coldfield and Mr. Thompson, fifth chapter is her directly speaking to Quentin. And then this, the last one. So it's also very, we think of structuralism as being a big deal during the modernist era, during these writers of the twenties and thirties. And so these, these nine chapters, exactly the first four, you know, the fifth and the last four um, with those two boys at, at Harvard. And the other thing that he's doing with all this is this novel, Kurt, I think it's important to point out as we go over how strange the frame and the, the structure and the approaches. This same year, this book comes out, Gone at the Wind is published. One of the two becomes a giant bestseller. It's almost impossible to talk about Absalom, Absalom without bringing up Margaret Mitchell. And I think one way to think of Absalom is as the bizarro, <laughs> bizarro Gone with the Wind. <laughs> um, in other words, if we think of Gone with the Wind as the culmination in some ways of lost cause mythologizing, where Mitchell essentially blends that romanticization of the antebellum South with the romance novel that became popular in the 20s and early 30s. This is the response to that that is deconstructing or dismantling all of that mythology. I just I wanted to throw one quick thing out about right. structure because I'm so glad that you use the word spiral because I have always thought of it using a word that William Butler Yeats made famous, which is the gyre made famous in the 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 um, the second coming, widening and widening in the opening gyre. And you can think of, as Scott says, all of this speculation right. as sort of these ever broadening circles that accrue around one or two bits of what knowledge is. And it creates a kind of whirlwind uh, effect where we're just overwhelmed by what we don't know. And I think that's ultimately the point is that uh, this is a novel about our inability to certify history, to really ever create objective history. And so let's talk a little bit about the relationship between these two novels, because he's dealing with a lot of the themes that we think of as kind of cliched Southern literature types of, of themes. What do you see as the relationship between those two novels, Scott? To give Margaret Mitchell a little bit of credit, there was a pre-existing Southern romance template that she somewhat subverts. She does give you indications early on right. that the Southerners who thought they had a chance to win the war were idiots. The character Rhett Butler famously is an anti-patriot where the Confederates concerned, although he eventually joins up for other reasons. So we can give her a little credit for not being completely following all the cliches. But on the other hand, you have the big house. You have uh, Southern womanhood being this kind of privileged pinnacle of, of culture, this flower that has to be protected and shielded and helped. Uh, you have the fact that all the slaves are happy and loyal and did not right. really want to go off with those bad union people. Uh, the union had all the bad guys, the South had all the good guys. Uh, and, the, and the cliches go on. The tragic mulatto would be one of our famous Southern literature cliches of the young woman, typically, who is of mixed race, but she's closer to white 
than black. And so she's can pass for white. And so she's always caught between the exactly wanting to pass for white because you can be educated and you can gain your civil rights that way. And people think you're white, but you have to say no to your heritage. And or and sometimes, of course, they're just like white, but they're not accepted as equals because people know that they're black. And it's only, you know, it might be useful to talk about an old distinction and maybe this has fallen out of favor in discussion, but it was part of when we were being trained in how to read things, Kurt, was something people talked about, which is cultural, not only racism, but racialism. And racism is, of course, when we employ bigotry and stereotypes and we actively harm people of different races. And racialism is when a culture is obsessed with race and it plays into everything and it shows up in every way. So yeah. that when you mention a ball player, you have to say, you know, white or black or Puerto Rican or whatever, we, we place them rather than simply allowing them to exist only as individuals. And this novel, and that is one of Faulkner's ongoing concerns. And you really see it very much in uh, Light in August, which precedes this novel. And in later books as well, you know, Go Down Moses, that great collection, which comes out a few years later. And here, what is Charles Bond exactly? We know what the speculation is toward the end of the novel, but we never actually know what he is. And so very much Faulkner is tackling in the same way to Gone at the Wind, uh, halfway subverts them, but really then kind of reifies yeah. them. Faulkner is out and out attacking them, but in subtle, sneaky ways where maybe you don't realize it until, again, you reread it or really think about what he's doing in tackling these issues. So at the center of the novel, and one of the, I think, a great achievements of this is it's it's comparable to The Great Gatsby in some ways, although Gatsby is a whole different milieu, a whole different approach, and a whole different kind of emotional vibe to it. But we have here another great figure, another American figure of self-making. And that's one of the quintessential ways that this book is, is quote unquote American. This is about uh, the story of a young man born into poverty who decides to make something of himself. Now, Thomas Sutpen is not a sympathetic character because the way he goes about it is the hubris or the all-consuming drive to create this dynasty, to create a name, leads him to commit both uh, a, a, an absolute series of both moral and legal horrific crimes. Right. And then it all collapses around him. And um, again, we've talked right. before about how much we like to see the rich taken down. I would say that, you know, Sutpen in a lot of ways is, is an equal figure, although he's kind of very scary figure in a lot of ways, just because we never, we never see him with any kind of emotion or other than, or any happy emotion other than just absolute driven by uh, the design that he has. There are a couple famous scenes that help us explain the wound right. that maybe sparks that. Um, an early one happens in, in his, his own childhood and is considered kind of the origin source of his desire to make it. And, and do you want to explain what that one is, Scott? So we learn, of course, the full story of Gatsby late in the novel. And Nick tells you early in Great Gatsby some of the elements of it. But of course, he doesn't learn any of this until he mostly uh, after Daisy has run over um, Myrtle Wilson 
spoiler alert if you haven't read Great Gatsby. In this novel, we don't really learn till pretty well into it that Mr. Compson or that uh, General Compson, the Clinton's grandfather, had finally been told after the Civil War when everything was kind of falling apart that as a young man growing up in what was Virginia then in West Virginia after the war, uh, his family moves to a richer district and he's sent to deliver something or get something at this wealthy man's house. And a slave opens the door, gives him a disparaging look as a shoeless specimen of white trash and says, you go around to the back door. And the boy is so angered and kind of dehumanized and challenged by that, that he rushes away and becomes obsessed with becoming someone who lives in the big house rather than someone who's not good enough to go to the front door of the big house, which will lead him to adventures. And we don't even know what kind of possible thefts. We, we do know he's willing to get married to a woman in which she no longer fits his plans and fits the design of becoming a self-made man of importance. He casts her aside like she was a, a wrapper around your, your cheeseburger. And one of the interesting things about the book is that first wife is not in Mississippi or anywhere really in the American South. The novel takes an interesting detour to Haiti. Right. And one of the, one of the very curious things about the book that has inspired a lot of uh, speculation. I mean, we're doing this just days after the president of, of Haiti was assassinated and there's all kinds of uh, speculation about, uh, you know, to what degree um, uh, certain Americans might have been involved in that murder. Mm. But he goes to Haiti in the 1820s and he his first big step into wealth is to put down a slave revolt. Right. Uh, which historically is impossible in Haiti in the 1820s because it was a, it had been a d- democracy. Uh, for 20 years at that point. Right. But as a reward for putting down this slave revolt, uh, uh, Suppen is allowed to met, to marry a woman named, I guess it's pronounced Eulalia. Uh, is that how you would say it? I think so. I really don't know how I pronounce it. Yeah. Some of the names in Faulkner can be a little, a little exasperating, but I've always said Eulalia. But then he discovers that she has black blood some African heritage and that delegitimates his plan. Right. Although, and this is where it gets weird. Clinton and Shreve at the end of the novel decide that the thing that makes her delegitimate his plan is because she has black blood. There's only one other place where Faulkner maybe shows his hand on whether that's really what it is. And we'll talk about that. So that's part of the complication. Let me throw a weird wrinkle into the conversation, uh, Kurt. There's been a lot of good scholarship on the gothic elements of the novel. So at the very beginning, when he, when Clinton first goes to the deserted break, Mm -hmm. broken down old manor house, old big house of the South with Rosa Coldfield has a very gothic feel. And of course we return to what happened during that visit right at the end of the novel. So we go the whole novel with this kind of Edgar Allan Poe sized hole in the narrative. And then, uh, there are many other Gothic elements right. and Gothic methodologies. The idea, and as we know, one of his working titles for this book, and he really intended to use it two or three times, never did, was Dark House, making us think of that. So here's where it gets weird. So if we think of great yeah. Gothic novels of British literature, we think of Jane Eyre. And of course, uh, Mr. Rochester had been to Haiti 
and had uh, brought his wife back, right? And she goes insane. He locks her into the attic in the same way that someone is still haunting the house at the end of Absalom, Absalom. I wonder if possibly, and I'm sure someone's written on this somewhere. I can't be the first to think of this. I wonder if somewhere Faulkner is making, you know, someone's written making a, a particular Jane Eyre connection for us with that. And we have, you know, White Sargasso Sea comes out in the 60s. And that's a revision of, of, of Jane Eyre. Uh, Jane Eyre famously, uh, feminist criticism kind of took a leap from Jane Eyre by coining a, a famous phrase about mad, the mad woman in the attic right. is the way that a lot of uh, male literature has sort of repressed the treatment of female emotions up in, or the incon, quote unquote, inconvenience of femininity up into some sort of uh, room or space locked away to, to contain the threat of, of, of it. You know, you think automatically, too, of another great gothic classic, The Yellow Wallpaper. Right. So this is for sure a Southern Gothic. We also have in the descent, the final image of Sut Penn's legacy, his great-grandson through Charles Bond, that lineage, is mentally handicapped. So we have the whole degeneration in a, in a, in a weird Roderick and Madeline Usher kind of way. Right. Well, and at, at the end of the fall of the House of Usher, the house falls. At the end of Jane Eyre, the house burns down. At the end of this novel, Quentin tells the story of how the house burns down. Exactly. And it becomes a kind of uh, repudiation on the part of authors of the very idea of, of lineage or of the idea right. of 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 the wealthy being either made to great fortunes or uh, born to them, and uh, I think uh, you know that this is that you could compress the theme of this particular book. This is the way that Faulkner saw it: is the sins of the father, right? Taking out of the biblical story of David the notion of uh, Absalom who kills his brother to avenge the rape of his sister. This idea of family secrets. Right. destroying a family. And also Sutpen denying his wife, his first wife, Eulalia, and Charles in the same way that he's denied. Right. Not as a hypocrite, not understanding how his hubris has affected everything and, and perpetuated these problems down the line. And what's strange is we do have confirmation somewhere that Charles is actually his son with Eulalia. I think we, that's something we do find out is true. And we do know that she is the woman from Haiti, and we know she's got, we have the conjecture about the lawyer who sends Charles to the burgeoning new University of Mississippi so that he might meet someone involved with the Sutpins. That seems to be the biggest stretch, that little bit of coincidence. But as we know, literature is always based on coincidence. You know, Huck and Jim traveled the entire Mississippi River to end up at the one farm expecting Tom Sawyer to come yeah. visit, for example. Great expectations. The guy you happen to save out in the swamps who's getting away from the British authorities happens to be the, the father of the girl you've got this giant crush on. And it happens that he's actually got all this money stolen away. So a lot of coincidence is always a big part of what literature is about. But if we go even further here, we, in that idea of the sins of the father, his his daughter by one of his slaves that he does not repudiate since he doesn't yeah. have to recognize her, Clytemnestra, called Clyde, reminding us, of course, the story of Agamemnon, who sacrifices his daughter to 
get on the right side of the gods before going into the Trojan War and is later has a horrible vengeance mm-hmm. wrecked upon him by his angered and deserted wife and surviving daughters. What about just this idea that we, it's so much of it is conjecture. What about the fact, Kirk, that as it builds and builds, so Charles meets Henry, somehow Charles and and Judith start a relationship of Henry as a kind of go-between telling Charles stories of Judith, sending letters home about Charles and Judith. Charles visits a few times and in almost no time, Ellen, seemingly out of desperation, Ellen is Thomas Sutton's wife, mother to Henry and Judith, has decided that, well, clearly Charles and Judith are going to end up married and are going to have a successful relationship. And Judith, and you get a feeling because she's Thomas Sutton's daughter and Sutton is so distrusted in Jefferson, they all have this strange feeling about him, has been isolated and ostracized her whole life. And this is maybe the only young man she's ever met other than her brother or for any length of time or any way of having a peer, someone to speak to. And she's falls in love and and wants to marry him. And then of course the war intervenes. And at this point, Thomas has told him there's, he's got an octoroon mistress in New Orleans. And for people who've studied the history of New Orleans, Storyville had row after row of houses of women who were famously of mixed race, often called octoroons. Some, you know, very often who knows what in the world the racial mix was, but light-skinned African-American women who these Mississippi and Louisiana planters would have town mistresses that they'd come stay with. And many times these relationships were written out in very explicit contracts about what the woman would be paid and the rights of the children. And Louisiana coming out of the old Napoleonic code actually had very strange, but in some ways possibly more fair rules protecting children of mixed race and people of color than the rest of the South had. As weird and bizarre as that seems, it seems to have benefited more people than it hurt because of the total lack of any civil rights throughout the rest of the post-slavery South. That's a great point because you could argue that part of what this book is doing is contrasting the American racial phobia of miscegenation to at least two other cultures, the Haitian culture and the Creole culture, where, you know, race mixing is kind of considered an, an, an inevitable, inevitable fact. But then again, this novel is, is out in a period just after, I guess, uh, a period in which America was obsessed with eugenics and the threats to white supremacy. Gatsby is famously influenced or at least takes a satirical pot shot with a supposed scientific study called The Rising Tide of Color. Tom Buchanan. And this, this fear that I hope this sounds kind of familiar to what we're going through this day in a and age where all kinds of legal protections are being sewn into the system to protect the primacy primacy of white people and i think this novel is very timely in the way that it pokes and prods our our anxieties about miscegenation and the strange thing is that a climactic moment, supposedly, and again, this is all imagined, where we have a scene supposedly between Charles Bond and Henry about which is worse, the incest or the miscegenation. Because Right. And that's just it. So for the yeah. for all these four years, they're putting it off because his supposedly this conjecture, 
is that the father tells you know Henry right before he goes to war, he's actually your half brother, so you can't let the marriage happen. And for four years, Henry seems to wrestle with it. Someone saves someone's life. Is it Charles saving Henry? Henry saving Charles? It goes back and forth depending who they think it is. And then it finally comes down to that question: You better shoot me because I'm the n-word who's going to sleep with your sister. And Henry does. And of course, it's Quentin and Shreve sitting up who make that decision. Now Faulkner does play his hand in one place, and it's amazing how much criticism you read, how many reviews you read that speak of this as if it's true fact. And that's an important point to emphasize. the The other place, and you had mentioned this before, is where people make this mistake: is sort of assuming that Joe Christmas in Light in August is indeed half black, right? And you have no idea what he is. So part of what the what is being prodded here is our fear of not being able to define yes. the distinction between white and black, which I might just throw out there as kind of the anxiety that people are having today. You know, as I was remembering, as I was kind of rereading sections of this novel, when I first arrived in Alabama almost 30 years ago, there was a huge controversy because the principal of a school announced at a school assembly that there shouldn't be any interracial dating uh, at the prom. And it's interesting to think as recently as 1994, those sorts of rules were around. Here we are then with in 1936 with Faulkner having these guys sitting up so obsessed with it and having these lapses and trying to sort it out. And the thing they finally land on is it's must have been worse than simply the young man marrying his half sister. It must be he has some small spot of African blood in him. And and of course, the, the obsession with that and the obsession with that whole notion of racial purity, of creating dynasty, of presuming to own things for yourself while you deny it to others. Faulkner in the book that comes out not too many years after this talks about it as the South's original sin. And that it really starts with how the white men coming in presumed to take the land from the uh, Native American tribes. And then it is taken to its kind of apotheosis through slavery. And in uh, Go Down Moses, of course, he has Ike McCaslin say, this is why God cursed the South, yeah. the first and then the second. And this is why you have all these famous mischances which occur, which stopped some sure Southern victories from happening in the Civil War. And it's why the South will continue to be haunted for decades and decades, if not centuries to come, because of that original sin of, of resting control of the land and seek, thinking you can own everything and, and slavery. Sutpen's plantation, which is called Sutpen's Hundred because it's a hundred square acres. He gets that by tricking a Native American out of it. Another way to read this story is in the in the long tradition of of novels about American businessmen. Right. All of whom are portrayed as undone by their lust for success or lust for wealth. So in some ways, this is a broader critique of the American success story and the whole entrepreneurial spirit. 
well, the whole rags to riches cliche cooked up by Horatio Alger in the kind of kids dime store fiction in the 50, 1850s and 1860s. Yeah. And just you, you think of the biblical quote, what does it profit a man to gain the world should he lose his soul? And Sutpen immediately dismisses his soul. And so much so that when he when he comes back from the war, his wife is dead. And so he says to her younger sister, who's younger than his daughter, well, I guess we can get married. Or why don't we see if we have a kid that's a man to carry on the dynasty and then we'll get married. Now, again, some of that supposition by the two college roommates. Then when that doesn't work, he starts having an affair with the teenage daughter of his one last final retainer who stuck around Wash, the squatter, the kind of handyman who basically gets paid by sharing a little bit of the whatever food is left from the crops and by doing handy handyman jobs around the yeah. household. So the guy has a teenage daughter, he's, or granddaughter, excuse me, he's caring for. 15 years old. Suffin gets her, uh, has sex with her, gets her pregnant. When he finds out she has a daughter, he dismisses her like he dismissed the first wife and everyone else who's not directly in support of his design to make himself into this important man of prominence. And Wash says, I'll touch you, Colonel. I'll touch you. And that's kind of the the end of, of Thomas Sutton. Doesn't just shoot him. It's a, a scythe. It's a pretty vicious ending. We should mention that that particular ending was also worked out before the novel in a story called Wash. Faulkner invented a lot of his plots and short stories and then stitched them into novels. Right. But just the end of that, that bloody death by, by Scythe, is, it reminds us of how many just arresting images of violence are in this novel. Two famous ones early as he's building Sutpen's hundred or trying to build this dynasty before the Civil War. There's a scene where he has this uh, architect that he has kidnapped and the architect uh, has uh, right. tried to escape at one point. And they have, I guess, what today would be sort of considered a kind of a cliche of Southern literature and film, which is the the kind of hunt for the escapee. Um, and, you know, Sutpen's viciousness of hunting, sure. hunting the architect down and bringing him back to finish this house, which is a gaudy testament to his uh, ambition. Uh, but then we have this moment where early on for entertainment, he strips down to the waist and fights his own slaves in front of his children. Henry is appalled and crawls off to yes. vomit, but his two daughters, one legitimate Judith and one illegitimate because she's born of a slave, Clyde, as you mentioned, are enthralled by the violence. So Faulkner is very aware of how, again, part of what he's doing here is dismantling this whole idea that uh, Southern, Southern plantation founders kind of walked around like Mr. Peanut in a top hat and a cane and were, <laughs> were the epitome of that upper class. The gentleman and aristocracy. Exactly. Well, you know, the, the South very much did style itself. I should say the plantation owner class, the planters in the South, um, styled themselves after yeah. the British aristocracy. And, but instead of being able to trace their family back 600, 700, 800 years to 
at some point and having lived this life of genteel manners all this time, they're a couple, a generation or two into that by the Civil War era. And so he's really tearing that idea down, but he's also going so far as to suggest, I would say, that if you did track that British aristocracy back 600 or 800 or 900 years, there's a guy there wrestling with his prisoners down or slaves or serfs down in a mud pit yeah. somewhere as well. And he too is just a guy who had the most troops and the most luck and the most violence at a certain time to, you know, he's like Twain. He's very much dismantling any notion of, of that deity has right. promoted these people right. into important places in the way that so many people want to believe in white supremacy for that very reason. It's a complete repudiation of the idea that the plantation class was doing a moral duty of taking care of the slaves at the same time. I mean, Sutpen never buys into that. It's all about him imposing his will on other people. Right. And that's that's Faulkner's critique of the system. Right. Uh, the whole Southern economy is that, you know, it takes a strong man to make other others bow down and fortunes are mortal. At some point, the strong man becomes weak and gets it's cut down by somebody else. So, I said earlier that Faulkner plays his hand in one place. And I want to I want to share that. And then I have a question I just want to ask you about. So the place where he plays his hand is he writes out a chronology for the first publisher. And it's been reprinted in most editions of the book. And it's certainly in the, the vintage international uh, edited by Noel Polk edition that came out in the uh, 90s, I guess. And in that one, he does say that in 1831, Sutpen learns his wife has Negro blood and repudiates her and child. So although in the novel itself, it's impossible to know whether that really happened, he does leave it in the chronology. Now, we could argue that's Quentin and Shreve's chronology, and we don't really know why he leaves. And the other thing I want to ask you is this book has one of the most famous ending sections of any book ever written in American literature. In the last two pages, here they are. These boys have stayed up all night long in their Harvard dorm room. It's freezing cold. Quentin's had the shakes. Uh, Shreve has piled overcoats and blankets on top of them. The radiators aren't working right. And Shreve finally says, do you want to know what I think? No, Quentin said, then I'll tell you. I think that in time, the Jim Bonds, and again, this is the uh, mentally disabled great-grandchild of Thomas Sutton are going to conquer the Western Hemisphere. Of course, it won't be quite in our time. And of course, as they spread toward the poles, they'll bleach out again like the rabbits and birds do. So they won't show up so sharp against the snow. It'll still be Jim Bond. And so in a few thousand years, I who regard you also have sprung from the loins of African kings. This is a Canadian, of course, messing with his Mississippi roommate. Now, I want you to tell me just one thing more. Why do you hate the South? I don't hate it, Quentin said quickly at once immediately. I don't hate it, he said. I don't hate it, he thought, panting in the cold air, the iron New England dark. I don't, I don't, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. That's the end of our book. So what do you think of that last page? Well, I think that's Faulkner poking a stick in the eye of Southern culture and inviting them to flip out about the possibility that down the line, I mean, this is the ultimate white supremacist fear that in a hundred years that race won't matter because let's be honest, what else is there for many white supremacists to claim superiority over if they, 
if they don't have, if the culture around them does not say somehow white is superior. Right. We were talking about, uh, before we hit the tape button, David Duke, and I was sort of reminiscing about the fact that I was in Baton Rouge in 1991 when David Duke ran for governor against uh, an opponent who beat him and then eventually went to jail. But I've always wanted to say to David Duke, if you are the master race, why do you need plastic surgery? And uh, I mean, the guy has just destroyed any semblance of a face he has by, you know, he kind of looks like, I don't know, a Hollywood actress at this point. A Muppet. Yeah. But what you see is a profound anxiety on the part of white supremacists that they don't have anything else to claim superior over. And that's one of the things that I would invite readers to question about what is relevant about this novel today, because this is a very intense critique of never mind Sutpin's belief that he's of an aristocratic class. This is a critique of that Southern redneck culture that uh, that first took hold of power in Faulkner's boyhood with governors and with senators. Uh, I think Vardaman is right. One of the famous governors. Exactly. Vardaman, whose idea of protecting the white supremacy was to promote lynching and to do whatever they needed to do to hold back the tide of blackness. So let me just throw this out there and folks are, you know, you can disagree with me all that you want to, but a lot of these state legislators that are trying to legislate civil rights out of existence, we're, we're kind of living through a period of that same sort of thing. The literary antecedent, in a way, your, your kind of classic, obvious case of how absurd it all is, is Pat Finn in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, who yeah. famously uh, has a long section where he says, this is an amazing country. It was election day, and I was going to go vote myself if I weren't too drunk to get there. And then he finds out that there's a you know, a free black man who has a professor in a college who speaks seven languages and who dresses really nice clothes. He's a respectable member of society who earns a good living. And, you know, he's astounded that guy will be allowed to go vote. And he says, that's what this country is coming to. You know, I'm not going to vote then. Of course, I think the answer to that is thank you. Please don't. Uh, And here in the book, then we have the second part of what we read. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. So I would put forward that for someone like Faulkner or like Clinton or later Flannery O'Connor or so many people growing up in the South, uh, whether it be, you know, Walker Percy, all these we could name, some of whom don't really pay a lot of attention to the racism, but do focus on classism and the love of the past and the glorification of the so-called lost cause is that on the one hand, you love the people who are around you. You love your family. You love how you've been raised. You have a kind of a little brother affection for your hometown. I can pick on it, but no one else is allowed to pick on it. And they, they pull kind of closed ranks, say when people from other parts of the country decry them or look down on them or make them into the, the kind of whipping post for all the rest of the country has always been very good, but the South was racist kind of, kind of attitudes. And yet at the same time that you are love them, you also hate the fact that the place does not live up to 
standards of justice and and kindness and how one human being ought to treat another. You know, am, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you're supposed to be. How are you doing that? How are you loving your neighbor as you love yourself? How do you how are you doing any of these kinds of things? You say you're just this nation, this region of virtues, of manners, of religion, of belief and faith. And yet everything you do decries that fact and subverts that fact. Yeah. And I think being caught in that kind of crosshair shows up in Faulkner over and over again. You see it in barn burning where the boy um, has to choose. Torn between loyalties. Between loyalties, between family loyalty and justice, literally. He has to go see the justice when he decides whether to help his father burn down houses, who doesn't do it because he's some court, sort of economic rebel, but does it out of pure meanness and anger. And you see it uh, very often when people treat each other. Are we going to treat each other as humans, or are we going to c- continue this sense of the father and continue dehumanizing each other, whether it's due to race or class? or any other reason we, we have a tendency to go that way. People often ask of William Faulkner, well, why if he wrote all these novels exposing all this stuff and reveling in the Gothic delusions that whipped the South into this frenzy of uh, denial, which only perpetuated the violence, why didn't he just leave? Well, you know, at different points he did go up to New York or he did go to Paris. And you know what? That's his home. That's where he was born to. And I think a lot of Southern writers are like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to leave. Right. I'm here because this is my place as much as it is to anybody else. And if you talk to many, many black people in the South, that's their argument. Why, you know, hey, you can sit here and talk about heritage and build all those statues of Confederate soldiers, but you know what? Right. I was here too. And my family was here and Martin Luther King's family was here and this is mine just as well. So in a lot of ways, Faulkner is about who gets to tell their stories. Yes. And he is writing as a way of, uh, again, dismantling mythologies. And he, he was not someone who was comfortable with any kind of political role. He believed in moderate end uh, or a slowly moderated end of segregation integration, but he thought it would take, he never thought it would happen over a 10 year period uh, with yeah. change in uh, elected officials. He always thought it would take a very long time. And famously, he told someone drunkenly during an interview, well, if the North invades again, of course, I'll have to take the street to shotgun. The flip side of that is he spoke out against the murder of Emmett Till and at one point yep. broke with one of his brothers who was who was a member of a white Christian council. And right. And and was burned yep. in effigy in his own yep. hometown square because he came out as pro eventual integration. So when people this is what I was talking about earlier, we have a tendency to look back in judgment. I would ask people, what have you done for the good of your fellow people that would see you burned in effigy? where you live uh, before we cast stones. Faulkner's racial history in the 50s as as the civil rights movement is taking off is very, very complex. And Noel Polk has a great article called The Plight of the uh, Southern Moderate that I think is worth uh, looking at for anybody who is interested in those issues. But he was also, I think, very, very prickly. And his sort of knee-jerk response was to disalign himself from 
any sort of cause or movement. He was not going to get out there on the barricades. He wanted to see himself as an individual. And so when he was being pressured in in, in the 50s yes. to sort of, what do you think of this, of Southern racism? And what do you think of civil rights? I think there was an element of him that was going all the way back to count no count and just being incredibly flippant and saying things that he would have to come out and apologize for. You know, it's just very difficult. He's very, uh, what makes him interesting to study is the fact that he, that he is a problematic and oftentimes hypocritical figure. He sort of resists our desire to simplify things into, and I do not use this metaphor lightly, black and white. All right, Scott. So I guess my question is the one we always wrap up with. Is it a great American novel? I absolutely believe it is. So obviously it's by an American. And it's also about, is, you know, is it about American themes? I think some people might say, well, since it's about the South, that's only a small portion of America. But I think you have to be leery of going that way. You can make the same argument about books by women or books by African-Americans or Hispanic Americans. I think instead we have to say, when we consider the legacy of colonization and taking land away from Native Americans, the legacy of slavery, I think a novel like this that deals with those problems and the the need of people to make themselves into something bigger by standing on other people's backs, it's an inherently American theme. What do you think of its aesthetic value, its artistic accomplishment? It's interesting to go back and look at the book reviews in 1936, because there were many critics that were just exasperated by this novel. The most famous one is Clifton Fadiman, who came out and referred to it as a penny dreadful tricked up in fancy language and given specious depth by the expert manipulation of a series of eccentric technical tricks. Well, it's kind of like you have to learn how to read Faulkner. It's as simple as that. I always think of William Faulkner as the Captain Beefheart of uh, Amer- of American literature. <laughs> it took me many, many years to be able to get through about the first 10 minutes of Trout Mask Replica. And it makes you experience art in a different way. And I think we need those examples. Yes. We live in a world in which literacy rates are already dwindling. And we have to retain some sort of ability, some sort of cognitive ability in whatever art form we choose in order to make things, to challenge our notions of what accessible should be. Yeah. So I, you know, this is a novel that makes you work for it. The pleasures are the rewards of patience and of rereading it. Maybe it takes you 30 years like it did me. And I think as you develop in your sophistication as a reader, you're no longer satisfied with enjoying a plot or interesting things happening to a character. At some point, you do want your brain to be challenged, just like learning chess. You know, if you only play young kids and you always beat them, you can feel very smug about that. But at some point you get kind of bored with the chess game if it's always easy and you want to play people who are at your level or better than you because you up your game. And so it's by reading writers like Faulkner or Toni Morrison or James Joyce or Virginia Woolf and many others we could name who were on the more creative and challenging and virtuistic language side of the spectrum to to kind of bring us out further in terms of our ability to read. And 
And it also, I think reading these people helps you read someone who's seems simple like Hemingway, who's actually very complicated when you understand everything he's doing. Well, real quick, durability. Is it going to last? I think once you get past that initial phase where Faulkner disappeared, was never really out of print, but those books were incredibly difficult to find. Uh, it just wasn't new editions weren't coming out. But there's no doubt that since it became something that was taught in colleges, right. it still exists. And it exists in the same way that uh, many objects of art exist. There has to be some sort of institution around to help explain it, to decode the mysteries and to teach us about why it should be. So do I ever think that Absalom would fall out of fashion? Um, no. Uh, in the same way that I don't think we're ever in America going to unknot the Gordian tie of racialism. It stands as a monument to invention and I think there are going to be generation upon generation of people who want to get in there and pull it apart just because right. the themes and the issues are so relevant. All right. The other thing we always do to wrap up is to pose this question of cannon fodder and to ask ourselves, is there a comparable novel or some sort of sister brother piece that I hesitate to use that metaphor in a novel about incest, but... Uh, that maybe deserves to be in the canon as well. And it's not the obvious one that you're thinking of. So Margaret Mitchell fans, sorry to disappoint you, but Scott, you have a candidate that we want to talk about. So this is comparable in that it is a novel about the more modern South or part of it, although it takes on class rather than race. And it takes on other things as well. And this novel is Daniel Woodrell's Winter's Bone. Woodrell first appeared on the scene. There was a fad in the uh, 70s, early 80s of what I would call regional detective writers. So you have uh, Tony Hillerman writing uh, Western Native American mysteries, and you have James Lee Burke writing the Dave Robichaux, Louisiana Cajun detective novels. And many of them are pretty good books, and they're, they're very literary crime and, and detective novels, noir novels. So Daniel Woodrell starts by writing, he's from Arkansas, he's from the Ozarks, and, and starts by writing these Cajun noir novels that are only somewhat successful. And at some point, he writes a book, uh, 1998, called Tomato Red, which is a cracking, yeah. exceptional noir piece. And then he starts cranking out some really exceptionally good uh, noir films. And one of the ones in here that showed what he was able to do is a Civil War book called Woe to Live On, one of his early novels that was mostly ignored, later made into the film Ride with the Devil. It's a very good book. Starring Jewel. Starring Jewel and uh, and Toby Maguire are the yeah. two of the main characters. And then he finally, in 2006, writes Winter's Bone. And this was also made into a, a very close, successful film adaptation as well, I want to say 2010 or so, and uh, one of Jennifer Lawrence's first uh, mm -hmm. films. But the novel is about this young woman who's graduating from high school and trying to escape this incredibly dark, dire world of extreme uh, poverty in the Ozarks uh, among, uh, again, what we would not charitably refer to as kind of white trash culture 
meth culture and it's about her father goes missing. She's trying to provide for her family. She's trying to figure out what's going on and is trying to put the pieces together. So there's a bit of a mystery there, but it's much more, it's written just uh, beautifully. It's a short novel. And in, in some ways, his language is in itself, again, what, what sucks you in more than just a plot. And I would yeah. say, if, if you like this kind of thing, it's definitely worth it. And it's also something that I think is worthy of being on syllabi and considered among the greater American novels written in the last 30 or 40 years. I would absolutely agree. I think that one of the things that happens, he's often referred to as the Shakespeare of the Ozarks. Huh. And I think in that language play, uh, it's just uh, amazing. But one of the things that he does is I think it is so easy to sort of lampoon redneck culture or that economic underclass. It's right. usually either portrayed that way or portrayed as victims. But I think he brings us into this world as it is lived on its own. There is never a moment in that novel that feels stylized in the way that a popular TV show that absolutely rips his work off, called Ozark, by the way, does. Right. And so you never feel like there's some sort of smarmy pants author behind this going after this world or mocking it. He's no. giving us this picture of this very bleak world. I used to say that the movie Winterbone was two hours of watching Jennifer Lawrence walk up a hill, yeah. but that's that world. That's that existence. Yeah. It is as stark as any existential novel. And I hate the term existential, but that's what we have here. So that's what it is. All right. So, Kirk, you want to tell everyone what our next book will be? Well, we are going to stay with the Southern theme and go with a different perspective on the South, one that uh, many people maybe not realize uh, has a controversial angle to it, and that is Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. Fabulous history of a, of a novel that was published and fell disappeared from people's awareness and has now become probably the one of the most taught and maybe second only to the great Gatsby. And it may be first at this point of novels. Yep. You, you can't go in any bookstore and, and not see it. And that I think is one of the things that'll give us something fun to talk about next time. Yep. Well, we thank you all for listening to the great American novel podcast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're so inclined, we'd appreciate favorable reviews. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you may enjoy others, such as Master of the Forty with Kirk and Robert Trogdon, focusing on the short stories of Scott Fitzgerald, and Rita McCarthy with me and other guests about the works of Cormac McCarthy. And you can always email us at greatamericannovelpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.